Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troy, your host, and each week we look at a new public policy book and talk to the author to see what motivated them to write the book and what public policy prescriptions they have as a result of writing the book. This week we're going to be talking to Ron Christie, the author of Acting White, The Curious History of a Racial Slur. Ron has a pretty serious policy background, having worked in Congress and in the White House under George W. Bush. He also has had a rough time, he says, for being an African-American Republican, has, has been criticized for, as the book's title says, acting white for espousing certain policy views. It kind of reminds me of the old joke that Ronald Reagan used to tell about being a Republican and going to campaign in certain heavily Democratic parts of California. He said he felt like Gary Cooper in High Noon just going into those areas. Well, we're going to have Ron right here live in the Hudson Institute studio to talk to him about his book and see what kind of experiences he has had as a prominent African-American Republican and how he responds to people who criticize him for having views that are unexpected based on his racial category. Ron Christie, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. It's a pleasure to join you, Tabby. Thanks for having me. Before we really get into the nub of the book, I'd love to talk a little bit about your background, how you got to be who you are. Well, I grew up in Northern California, which comes as a shock to a number of people. Uh, I grew up in Palo Alto in a very liberal um, community, uh, predominantly dominated by folks from Stanford University and the academia circle. But uh, having left California and attended a small school in Pennsylvania called Haverford College, I really uh, learned that my true passion uh, was of a conservative ideology based on a strong national defense, strong social values, and a fiscal conservative uh, principles that over the years have served me well in my career in politics, uh, as well as my current profession of running a small strategic advocacy firm uh, in Washington, D.C. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that career in politics, because that, that's really where you made your name. I mean, how did you go from someone who grew up in Palo Alto uh, then went to Haverford College, as you talk about it in the book, and then and then what happened? Well, I tell you, it was it was a remarkable opportunity for me in the summer uh, of 1990. I actually had run into my congressman, uh, then Representative Tom Campbell, uh, who represented uh, the, the 12th congressional district, uh, Stanford University, and the environs, and he asked me if I'd ever been to Washington D.C. before, and I said I hadn't, and he said, you know, you're the you're the sort of fellow, and just talking in the grocery store that I think really enjoy interning in Washington, why don't you come and intern in my, my office in the summer? And, and I did, Tevi, and it was a absolute love fest of the mix of policy, really being able to delve deeply into issues and interacting with some very bright and very motivated people uh, that had me afflicted with something that you know well, which is called Potomac Fever. And I think that uh, that opportunity uh, led me to, to come back uh, to Washington, D.C. Once I graduated in 1991, uh, I had taught briefly at the Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, and then had spent my time on Capitol Hill, first as a, uh, a legislative assistant, uh, and then eventually uh, the legislative director and senior advisor to Ohio Congressman John Kasich, uh, who is now probably the governor of the uh, great state of Ohio. So it's it's been a great run uh, for me on Capitol Hill, but, of course, best uh, best of all for me, those those experiences and background gave me the opportunity to join the staff of the White House, uh, of having the opportunity to serve as Vice President Cheney's Deputy Domestic Policy Advisor and then uh, as a Special Assistant to the President and uh, the Deputy Director of 
President Bush's USA Freedom Corps uh, initiative, a, a domestic and international community-based uh, initiative. So it's it's been a remarkable ride for me in politics and a, and a privilege and an honor to serve the country and something I, I think about and reflect upon every day. Well, after that remarkable career, and I remember fondly a lot of our experiences together working in the White House, you also wrote another book, a first book, which was called Black in the White House, which I also read and enjoyed. And was that the book that kind of led you or prompted you to write this book? It was. Um, Black in the White House, uh, by the way, uh, was was a book that was a labor of love. And, and certainly one of my mentors and someone that you worked side by side with as well is Mary Madeline. Um, and Mary had said to me, she said, you know, I think uh, for a variety of levels that people would be interesting to hear the perspective of someone who is African-American, who is conservative, who spent four years working for the vice president and for the president. And many of the stories that I recount in Black in the White House led me to think also of, you know, why is it that black folks vote nearly 90 percent lockstep in line with the Democratic Party? Why is it when you look on some of the issues that blacks should be a lot more uh, conservative and a lot more uh, affiliated with conservative principles than they are? And what is this notion that somehow if you act a certain way or talk a certain way that you're acting white? So I think Black in the White House led me to really examine um, my background growing up in California, going to school in Pennsylvania, and my experiences in public service and tackle a question of saying, why is it that if you act a certain way, talk a certain way, that you're accused of acting white? Now, I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to because I've read the book, but were you ever tagged with the slur? And you talk about that in the book. I was, and, you know, you get tagged with it in a variety of different ways. Uh, the first opportunity um, I had had to experience that unfortunate slight really came when I worked as a junior legislative assistant on, on Capitol Hill, uh, just having worked for uh, a, a Sophomore member of Congress, Craig James, and he was the Veterans uh, Affairs uh, representative, uh, one of the representatives on that committee. And having gone with him uh, to the committee hearing where I served uh, to prepare him for that hearing, uh, California Representative Maxine Waters uh, had spied me from across the room and was very curious, you know, why are you here? Are you committee staff? And I explained. And she is African-American. And and she is. And and she represents. As uh, are you. I guess we haven't said that. This is an audio podcast. For the record, yes, audio podcast. You're you're, you're talking to a black guy through and through. Uh, She represents uh, South Central Los Angeles. And, you know, she inquired where I was from and told her where I was from. And after the hearing. She she, was very nice about it. Oh, gracious. Couldn't have been any nicer. And I thought, wow, you know, my, my great aunt and uncle live in her district. And. There she is, and she's been a stalwart in California politics. And after the hearing, she had called and asked if I could come see her. And I had gone down to, to her office and, and visited with her and what I thought she was going to you know, commiserate and say, it's great, Californians, here we are. And she accused me of being a sellout to my race, and she accused me of a, a wide variety of very derogatory comments that were based, based solely on the color of my skin rather than my ideological or philosophical views. And black people don't think this way. Black people don't act that way. And that stung me. Can I just clarify that that it was the the color of your skin, but also the fact that you were working for a Republican member. It was just those two facts in conjunction with one another that set her off. That's exactly right, Tevi. And that's the thing of, you know, why is it that you're, if you're black and conservative, that you have to be a Democrat? Or why is it that if you're black and you're from California that you have to think or act a certain way? And 
that was sort of the first sort of precursor of being tagged of, well, black people don't do this or think this way, so therefore you're somehow inauthentically black. And I'll tell you, the thing that really stung me is that I was really, really thrilled to participate in a mentoring program. Uh, the, the, there were a number of folks in the House of Representatives staff who participated in a program called HOPE, and that stood for Help One Student to Host, I should say, Help One Student to Succeed. And host tutors, we had gone to a particular uh, elementary school in, in a very uh, economically distressed area. And you walk in, Tevi, and there are these beautiful children, school uniforms and full of life and energy. And there were hundreds of them just running around just being kids, and they were all African-American. And you get to where the tutoring room was, and there were about 20, 25 students. And I remember looking at the principal and saying, well, we have many more tutors. We can get more tutors if we can help you know, with these kids. And she said, no, these are the students that we've identified in kindergarten, first and second grade, that we think have the best chance of getting out of here. Those other kids we don't think have a chance. And so it struck me that you're already writing off a generation of children. And the little student I got, and I loved him to, to pieces, and I got to mentor him for a couple of, of terms, but I just vividly remember him looking at me in his white shirt and his, his pressed pants and looking at me and said, well, you talk white and you act white and you dress white. And I thought, what does that mean? What does How it old mean? Was this kid? He was a first grader. Unbelievable. And it was worse. How many people have you seen killed? What is your favorite drug? How many children do you have? These questions from. And, and you were unmarried at the time. Unmarried at the time. I was in my young 20s. And the lack of innocence for the statement coming from such an innocent looking young boy just struck me. Uh, what are we doing as a culture and as a society that if you act, dress, talk, and walk a certain way, that black folks will accuse you of acting white? What does that mean? And that was something that between the experiences with Representative Waters that I that briefly discussed and this small child, I thought, I have to do something, and I have to, as a way of a social and cultural protest, try to raise the alarm and say, we have to stop this derogatory treatment of people based merely on the color of their skin. Yeah, I was glad you said that you treated the Waters story briefly in our conversation here because it really is a very eye-opening and uh, just shocking story. I, mean, I remember when I read the book, I, I was taken aback by it. This, this senior respected member of Congress goes after a junior member and just starts berating him because of the, the party affiliation of the member for whom he worked. You know, has she responded in any way to this rather shocking story at the beginning of your book? No. Not, not a word. And, and, you know, the thing that really upsets me, I suppose, about all this is that throughout my media tour for the book and many of the conversations, um, I had had conversations with uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and I had conversations with friends of mine who, who worked for black members, and certainly they had all read this story and all heard about it. And it makes me just pause for reflection that other members and other staff who read that and were stunned by it could reach out to me and comment, but... She couldn't. And it's not that I'm looking for validation or I'm not looking for anything from her, but for being a elected official in a very responsible position to say something so irresponsible to, as you point out, to such a junior staffer, I was all of 22 years old, that I think that that sets the wrong tone and the wrong message for young people who aspire to get involved in public service for a senior member of the House of Representatives to treat a staffer, regardless of the color of their skin that way, 
but particularly because she sought to berate me because I was black, conservative, and Republican. You do something interesting with the cover of your book, which is something I, I must say I've never seen before, and as listeners of the podcast know I read a lot of books. The, the title of the book is the words acting white, but it's in the context of a quote, and the quote comes from President Obama, then Senator Obama, and the quote is, we must eradicate the slander that says a black youth with a book is, and then in big letters, the title of the book, Acting White. So are you and President Obama simpatico on this issue, on many issues? What, what, what do you think of President Obama? What would he say about this book? I think President Obama uh, would – there are many, many areas that we disagree about, but I think that this is something, uh, given his experiences in the south side of Chicago – uh, given his experience both at Columbia and at uh, Harvard University, something that he would agree with me on, that we must. And, and this was uh, during his electrifying keynote speech um, in 2004 when he nominated uh, Senator John Kerry to be the Democratic nominee. And looking at our culture and looking at our fiber, at looking at our fabric and looking at the fiber of our society, we must, I mean, I think he's absolutely right, eradicate the slander that says a black child with a book is acting white. I mean, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. I think where he would part ways with me, however, uh, are certainly some of the solutions that I have at the end of the book of ways that we can come together of education, I think, is the greatest civil right of the 21st century and that we need more choice, more opportunity, more areas for people of color to thrive. And Unfortunately, the president has seemed wedded to his ideological uh, philosophy that the teachers' unions uh, are more important than measuring for performance and making sure that students go to the best-performing schools. But I think the underlying theme of the book uh, is something he would agree with. You know, in the book, and I'd like you to tell the story, at a very young age, you vowed to eradicate this slur. That's the kind of ambitious goal for a, a, a young man. Uh, how did that come about? Can you tell that story? And How's that going? Have you gotten uh, close to eradication yet? <laughs> no. This, this will be a, a struggle. Uh, this will be a struggle that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. Uh, look, I, I think that uh, it was something that really struck me, both the, the, the story with the student uh, that, I, that I mentioned to you and, and those experiences with uh, Representative Waters, but also looking at what Senator Obama had said. And I thought, if someone isn't going to step up and address this and either raise the alarm bell or otherwise engage the public, then who is? And it's not that I look at myself as some great messenger or messiah for this, but I've been given the privilege and the opportunity of having been engaged in public service and having had the opportunity to appear uh, regularly on television and radio that I thought, I'm going to take this on. I want to take this on. I feel passionately about taking this on. And... It makes me think of a story that is not in the book that I'd like to share of, of being with President Bush and uh, in, in his, his first uh, four years of office in the USA Freedom Corps. He had sent me up to Albany, New York, and to, to uh, dedicate a boys and girls club in Albany, New York. And it was predominantly um, African Americans and Hispanics uh, who were there. And they were stunned that President George W. Bush would care enough about them to send someone to address them and to dedicate that facility, and even more stunned that it was me. And I thought, well, what are you surprised about? Well, George Bush, really? He wants, he knows about the Boys and Girls Club, and he's sending you, and you work for him? And it's those sorts of stories, Tevi, those sorts of encounters that I've had that make me think, we as a country have to get past this notion that people – 
belong in certain stereotypes, belong in certain blocks, and can be characterized just in external appearances, rather than George Bush sitting down with me and saying, you know, when I was governor of Texas, and I always talked about eradicating the soft bigotry of low expectations of Hispanic children and black children not performing to grade level, and people looking and saying, why are you doing this? That was also the inspiration for me of it's caring about people as individuals beneath the skin layer, but also recognizing that if you don't raise that call, Tevi, and if you don't try to elevate the importance of getting beyond this, then we never will as a society. And that's why I've taken this on. That's why I continue to take this on. And I have a third book, if we have time to get into it, that will be coming out next year that sort of picks up on where Acting White left off, uh, which is called Blacklash, which really looks at I'll leave it there. I'll, I'll let you get to your next question. But but the, the focus being on acting white and, and really in, 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 in focusing on the slur throughout history from the end of the, frankly, the Civil War to the present day of got to move past it. Yeah, uh, I will take this opportunity to invite you to come on the podcast when you have the next book out and we'll have a, I'll happy, happily have a conversation with you about Blacklash. But for now, let's focus on a little bit more on Acting White. That, that story you told about Albany also reminds me of a, of a great story you have in the book of how you went into a restaurant and, I don't know, was it an African-American neighborhood or there were, there were a lot of African-Americans in the restaurant and they recognized you from TV and they didn't really like what you said on TV. Yeah. But you confronted them and you kind of came to some sort of agreement. Yeah, this is uh, interesting. This was uh, this was two two summers ago, the the summer uh, of 2009, and I had gone up uh, to Martha's Vineyard, and Henry Louis Gates, uh, of course, had just come off of a rather difficult stretch. I think is the most polite way to put it um, of his encounter with the Cambridge Police Department, and he had had a forum on race and politics in the era of Obama at the old whaling church in, uh, in, in Martha's Vineyard. And for those of you not familiar with Martha's Vineyard, uh, this is a island off the coast of Massachusetts that is famous for having an enclave, a certain part of the island, um, ever since times of slavery to the present day, where blacks have gone uh, to have recreation, have gone to socialize, have gone to congregate. It's a black vacation spot. Yes. Uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of like your black uh, version of Nantucket. Uh, very, very uh, wealthy predominantly, academics, uh, lawyers, doctors, what have you. And I had gone into a diner uh, by myself uh, to have breakfast. And one of the gentlemen uh, who is a dean of a very prominent law school, or prom- very, dean of a very prominent medical school, I should say, in the United States, snickered as I walked past. And I but thought, you didn't know he was a prominent had dean. no idea. And I thought, you know, what, what did he just say? And he made some crack of, well, you know, this isn't what the civil rights movement was about. This is what Dr. King was all about. And I wheeled and I turned on him and I said, what are you talking about? This is exactly the embodiment of what the civil rights era was all about. Uh, I'm sorry, just to explain to our, our viewers or our listeners, uh, w- what is the this? Right. I mean, he asked you, are you that guy from TV? Are you yes. that guy who espouses, I guess, Republican positions on TV? Sure. Uh, the essence of really what he had led the members of his table to believe, which they had snickered about, which I took great offense about, was that somehow that these folks had made it right. They're very wealthy. They're prosperous. But they had made it because they were black, they were liberal, and they were Democrat. And that I somehow, for being black and conservative and a proud Republican, had somehow 
gone astray of the vision or I had strayed from the reservation by, by parting ways with my fellow blacks. And again, it's that whole notion, Tevi, that I just despise of if you don't act a certain way, think a certain way, then somehow you're inauthentically black and you're acting white. And I wheeled around. I said, no, this is exactly what Dr. King thought. This is exactly what the civil rights movement was all about, which was freedom and choice and opportunity and the ability to be judged on the content of your character rather than the color of your skin. And as I walked away, and it was a donut shop, I won't disclose the name, but it's a lovely place if you are ever uh, in Martha's Vineyard. Why not give them the advertising? I won't give them the advertising. I won't do it. But by the time I'd gone to the checkout line, the gentleman had come over and said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I was wrong. Do you mind? Would you like to join us? And I did. And we sat and we had breakfast together. It was the gentleman and his wife and his daughter and a couple of their friends. And what struck me about that is that later that evening was when uh, Dr. Gates and uh, uh, Lanny Guineer, a very prominent uh, professor uh, of law at Harvard University, along with Lawrence Bobo, another prominent. Guineer couldn't get confirmed by the U.S. Senate for a senior post at the Department of Justice under Clinton. Uh, as the uh, uh, assistant attorney general for civil rights because she was deemed as being uh, too liberal and, and, and too out of the mainstream. But what struck me, Tevi, was that evening I looked out and I saw all these famous academics, very prominent black folks, and the doctor and his wife were also in the church. It was held in the old Whaling Church. And they walked up to me and they introduced me to scores of people and said, we had breakfast with this young man. Oh, I recognize him from TV. And we were wrong. And we were wrong what we said to him. We were wrong what we thought. And that he was right, that what Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement was about was about freedom and about opportunity and about the opportunity to avail yourself of the American dream. And they drove me back to my hotel that night. And it's, it's amazing to me that a story that started in a acrimonious manner has ended with me being uh, friends and still corresponding with a very prominent uh, dean of a very prominent medical school in the United States and his wife, who is uh, a very prominent lawyer as well, um, folks who would be well-known to the listening audience. And uh, I just I was struck by that, which only proves that my personal crusade to eradicate the slander can work of people who are entrenched and who have a certain idea. But once you explain why that that idea is harmful and wrong and destructive, can change their viewpoint. This really is a great story and an encouraging story, and it makes me want to ask you the question of, what have you found more of? Have you found more of this medical school dean or more Maxine Waters? No, oh, no, more actions of the book. Oh, more, more Maxine Waters. I, I uh, for, for your listeners who don't believe me, I, I encourage you to Google and make sure that you put it in parentheses, uh, Ron and then Christy, and then put the in parentheses of what comes up. Uncle Tom. Uh, Ten worst black people in America um, sell out to his race. Who were the other nine? <laughs> the, pe- <laughs> the people that you might imagine. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, is certainly at the top of the list. Uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell, uh, a brilliant scholar at the Hoover Institute out at Stanford University. Uh, Walter Williams, a very prominent economist at George Mason. Um, Michael Steele, the former chairman uh, of the Republican National Committee. Um, I wouldn't have imagined those people at all if I were coming up with a ridiculous list like that. But. But, see, but you and I don't think that way. And that's exactly why I'm so passionate about this. It's that what is the one thing that I have in common with those gentlemen? They're certainly brighter than I am. We have the same skin color. 
and we have the same small government, strong fiscal conservative, strong national defense, ideological belief that we're pro-life and believe in the sanctity and dignity of human life, that, hmm, is it that they dislike us because of our espouse political positions, or is that they believe that if you are black, that you can't act, think, or suddenly uh, espouse views in a certain way without being, again, inauthentically black or acting white? Yeah, uh, one other thing I noticed in reading the book was that, yes, it's the history of a racial slur, but in many ways, it's kind of an intellectual history of Mm -hmm. African-American post-slavery in in America. I mean, you talk about... uh, um, Booker T. Washington and Marcus Garvey and, and Du Bois and uh, the, the sort of rivalry between Malcolm X and uh, and Martin Luther King. Were we consciously setting out to write that sort of uh, I don't want to say counter intellectual history, but but an intellectual history that that takes this slur into account and and looks at how black thinking has developed on a whole bunch of issues. It's an excellent question, Tevin, and and I did not intend to write the book that way. I I kind of wanted to know where did this come from. And how do we get to where we are today? And I, I traced the roots of the acting white uh, derogatory slur to Harriet Beecher Stowe and her writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's amazing for those of you who haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin, or if you read it in high school, you need to reread it, because she was brilliant in the way that she portrayed her characters. All of the main characters, with the exception of Uncle Tom, had been given certain values. They were highly intelligent. They could communicate very well. They had a strong grounding in faith. And, oh, they were black. But what was revolutionary about that was that it broke the stereotype of what blacks were supposed to be. Illiterate, not religious, did not have a strong moral compass and a moral background. And if you look at all of the major characters, uh, I should say, who are black in the book. Right. Simon Legree is none of those positive yes, things. He's I was going to say, l- 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 let me... but, but it is interesting that the worst person in the book is, is this, 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 this white person white who person. has no faith, no. who cannot articulate himself, and no. the only way he can express himself is through violence. Violence and hatred. And, and, and that's a key point. For, for I'm glad that you distinguished for your listeners because it was all of the major black characters that were not only given those character traits that we talked about, but they could pass for being white. If you look uh, at George and Eliza, of when they're going north, it's fascinating to me that when the slave hunters were coming after George, George was in a white tavern. George was very well-spoken. He was very well-dressed. He had all the characteristics of what you would think a prosperous white person would have, but that people couldn't have the notion of thinking that a black person could act that way, talk that way, dress that way. And Harry Beecher Stowe showed the, the, the folks at the middle part of the 19th century, no, black people aren't this way. They can act, tack, talk, and walk and be these great folks. And, and that was the clarion call for me of if this is where the notion that blacks could act this way was grounded and where I, I tr- trace it from, where there's similar juxtapositions throughout American history, and, and you touched on them. It's incredible. If you go to the turn of the century and you go to looking at Booker T. Washington, who very famously said in the Atlanta Exposition speech in 1896 that we can be black people as separate as the fingers of a hand when it comes to socializing together, but yet we can work together? Fascinating. And yet, W.B. Du Bois said no. The way to emancipate black folks is through civil rights and the ability to vote and, of course, 
the power and the value of an education. And you look at the juxtaposition of those two men and the struggles they had. You move forward another 20 years with Marcus Garvey, who created the Black Star Line, which was a rival to the White Star Line. The White Star Line, you will famously remember, uh, was home to the Lusitania and the and the uh, the Titanic. But Garvey believed that, no, black people should not only have their own ship line, but that they should return and repatriate Africa. And it was that juxtaposition of famous black scholars, intellectuals, leaders throughout the 19th and 20th centuries that while I did not set out to undertake that historical uh, uh, sketch, I think that's what, for me, found the book most compelling of it proves We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And it's something that black leaders have struggled with of should we act in uniformity as a Booker T. Washington or a Malcolm X or a Marcus Garvey might say, or should we value the power of emancipation of education, freedom of thought and expression that you have a, a, a Du Bois or you have a Martin Luther King or you have uh, other leaders espousing today? Yeah, and I'm glad you started to get into this because I do want to talk about the public policy aspect of the book, but I do want to first have a little bit of a shout-out for Eliza because, I mean, you're talking about George, but Eliza crossing the river in the ice is one of the best depictions of bravery in all of American literature and perhaps of all of Western literature. I think without any shadow of a doubt, that is one of the most vivid, one of the most powerful, one of the most uh, compelling uh, narratives in, in American uh, literature that's out there. And if you look... And he was an English major at Haverford, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to, to, to proudly represent uh, the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. And most of Uncle Tom's Cabin takes place in or about uh, Cincinnati, the northern Kentucky, um, sort of southern Ohio, Cincinnati area. And for those of you who are sort of questioning what Tevi and I are talking about, you should look on your, your web browser of Eliza and Escape, and if not, read it in the book. Yeah, read the book. Don't just go on the web. But, but I'm saying that, that there are many famous uh, artistic depictions of this as well that I just I found it so compelling, and I was so pleased that I was able to show the reader through the brilliance of Harriet Beecher Stowe the bravery, the courage, the determination to stay together, to do whatever it took, to keep that nuclear family unit in place, I, I just thought was truly remarkable. But you also have some ambivalence for the book because you say that this slur comes from her depiction of Tom in the book. And that's the, that's the ironic part of this. You know, when people look and they call me an Uncle Tom, I would hazard chances are they haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom, believe it or not, while misguided in his sense of he wanted to remain loyal to his slave master and the slave master's son – Uncle Tom is the one who is portrayed as being dark black, is portrayed as being somewhat brutish, is portrayed while loyal uh, to his family, ultimately is the one who sort of says yes, master, and does whatever to his master. So I was ambivalent because if you read the entire book, you recognize that he's a very kindly, a very benevolent soul, uh, particularly with the way that he treats children. But at the same time, people sort of latched on that and say, oh, you're an Uncle Tom because, oh, you're just willing to sell out to the man. But you have to get into the complexities of what Harriet Beecher Stowe was trying to show. And the brilliance, again, as you pointed out, of her characters in, in particular looking at George and Eliza and how 
Uncle Tom, I think, was unfairly maligned uh, of that derogatory term that, that folks use today. Yeah, we're running a little short on time, so I do want to get a couple of questions. We're going to just go quickly. Um, you talk about two really interesting things in the book towards the end, the, the naming study from Freakonomics that shows that there's sort of an urge to act, I guess, unwhite in, in naming that has economic consequences. And then you also talk about Ebonics, this sort of notion of speaking a, a certain way can be an approved language that could also have negative economic repercussions for black. Fascinating. Uh, the the young uh, black scholar, Roland Fryer, up at Harvard University, has uh, really branched out in an interesting uh, academic and career path for himself of really looking at the economics of acting white. Uh, and in the book, Freakonomics, that you mentioned, uh, as well as a, a study that was also undertaken, Fryer looks and he says, are there consequences of naming a child with a historically black name or a more traditional name, and does Ebonics have a particular impact on one's earning power or one's ability to thrive in America? And he arrived at a conclusion that certainly didn't surprise me, which is for those folks with a, and I'm not picking on any name in particular, but if you have a name like Lakeisha or Laquan, that you are less likely to have your interview, to have your resume come out of the stack, less likely to be called in for an interview, and less likely to have the job. And he made the point that are we, even before a child has left the hospital, condemning them in certain manners because people, right or wrong, are going to have stereotypes based on their name or based on their perceived socio or economic background that they're already behind the eight ball? I'm not saying that this is right or wrong, but I challenge and I wanted the readers to challenge themselves and say, are we doing something wrong of, oh, well, I can speak in abonics because I am down with the neighborhood. But as Bill Cosby famously said in his pound cake speech, Tevi, he said, you can't land a plane with you ain't, and you can't do certain things using that type of language. Are we condemning an entire generation to failure and economic poverty just on the way that they name themselves and the way that they talk in a certain way? I want to ask one more question before we get to our signature final question here on New Books and Public Policy, and that is, I think this is a really important book. Where are the reviews? You mentioned Googling yourself on, uh, on doing a search of Ron Christie acting white, which I did. And I did come up with some of those uh, ugly slurs. And as a friend of yours, I, it hurt me to read them. But I also would have liked to see reviewed in the New York Times, reviewed in the Washington Post. What, you know, what happened there? They're not going to take this. I, I my, my dear friend, uh, Lou Dobbs, who uh, is an anchor on the Fox Business Network and, and has his own syndicated radio show, was so thrilled when this book came out. And we talked about this on his show for weeks, if not a month. And he said exactly what you did. Where's the New York Times? Where's the Washington Post? Why isn't anyone looking at the intellectual underpinnings of what you have said here? Why not? And the reviews that I did get, and I was pleased, Kirkus Review, Publishers Weekly, some of the most library journals, some of the most prestigious ones, but they focused on my affiliation as a political commentator, rather than the historical and the social call to arms that I have here. They blew it off. Why? Because, Tevi, it doesn't fit the narrative that they want to write about. If you're black and you're writing something that's supposed to be historical or have important social value, you're talking about how great Barack Obama is. You're not talking about the question that you just asked about the, the, the really destructive nature of bubonics or is there an economic consequence to naming your child a certain way or sending your child to a historically black college or university? No, that doesn't fit the narrative. So then again, if Ron's saying these things or doing these things, 
he must be unauthentically black and somehow acting white. Well, Ron, you've been incredibly generous with your time, which I really appreciate. But I, I just want to ask you our signature final question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is what public policy ideas would you pursue as a result of what you've learned in writing this book? One thing for me uh, is that I've learned that education really is the, the true key that's going to unlock uh, the shackles that hold many of our students behind, uh, particularly communities of color. I look and I spend a lot of time in New York City uh, of what Jeff Canada has done with the Har- Harlem Children's Zone in New York City of having a community-based approach to parenting, to education, to after-school programs, to mentoring projects, to getting students not only wanting to go to college, but being motivated and excited of having a career. I think that's what this book, if it's one thing that's driven me and one thing that has given me greater enthusiasm to speak out across the country, to write my next book, which is sort of the follow-up to Acting White, which is to get the American nuclear family back together, to get the sense of community back together, but most importantly, of doing whatever I can to make sure that people are judged, as Dr. King told us to, on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That's what really motivates me on a daily basis, and I'm just thrilled to have had the opportunity to chat with you and and to your listeners and to continue to find ways to, to engage in the community in the days ahead. Ron Christie, thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy, and we look forward to having you back when your next book comes out. Tevi, always a pleasure, and it's an honor to be with you. You have been listening to an interview with Ron Christie, the author of Acting White, The Curious History of a Racial Slur. Ron Christie talked in the interview about his experiences as an African-American Republican, had some encouraging stories about people who were willing to say the civil rights movement was about believing what you want to believe and having the freedom to say what you want to say, but also has had some discouraging experiences as well. So he has ambivalent feelings about where the African-American community stands today. He also has found that he is quite vocal and has a lot to say. You can find him on TV, often on MSNBC. He's also on the radio a lot. And as he said, he is working on a new book. We'll be happy to interview him when that happens. But I hope you enjoyed the interview. hope you get the book, Acting White. And until next week, this is Tevi Troy for New Books and Public Policy saying, keep reading.